Chapter 14 of Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cheryl Martin. Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes. Edited by Walter Wood. Chapter 14 The Lamson Case. Thirty-five years ago, Wimbledon was the scene of an exceptionally cruel and deliberate murder. At Blenheim House School, one of the students, Percy Malcolm John, died suddenly on December 3, 1881. It was suspected that his decease was due to the administration of aconitine, a very swift and deadly poison, and this suspicion proved correct. It was shown that John, a cripple, had been poisoned for the sake of his money by his brother-in-law, Dr. George Henry Lampson, who was found guilty, ultimately confessed, and was hanged. This crime aroused intense interest at the time, largely because the doctor afforded a remarkable psychological study. This is the narrative of Mr. Charles A. Smith of the Medical Hall, Ventnor, Isle of Wight, who was an important witness for the Crown. I knew Dr. Lampson well, for I had had many interviews with him in the way of business. My personal knowledge of him extended over a period of eighteen months, because he spent much of his time in this part of the Isle of Wight, where his father was living. The doctor was a slim young fellow, a little under thirty years of age, with a very pleasant manner, and he had the knack of making you feel at home with him directly. He was one of the last men in the world you would suspect of committing such a cruel and premeditated murder as that for which he was hanged. Dr. Lampson was a mystery— there is not the slightest doubt that he was possessed of great capacity for good. As an army surgeon in Serbia and Romania, he had done fine and humane work, and there were not a few who spoke from personal experience of him as a kind and gentle person. It is not easy in these cases to form a correct judgment, but such a consideration need not weigh, because all that one desires to do is to deal with questions of fact. One thing is certain— and it is that the doctor was condemned only after a scrupulously fair trial, when his guilt had been fully proved by the prosecution, and he had every opportunity to establish his innocence. In the late summer and the beginning of the autumn of 1881, I made up various prescriptions for the doctor, and some of these I have preserved as curiosities. Here is one, just as I received it more than thirty years ago. Many are on odd pieces of notepaper, and this one's written on an envelope. A date I particularly remember is August 28, 1881. Between eight and nine o'clock on the evening of that day, Lamson, who was alone, came to my shop. I was then in business at 76 High Street, Ventnor, a little distance from the medical hall where I am now established. The door was shut, and the doctor opened it and entered the shop in just the ordinary way, precisely as he had come in on many previous occasions, either for a chat or to do business. He was quite normal. I did not notice the slightest difference in him. Yet events showed that he was then obtaining a particularly deadly poison with which he meant to take the life of his young and helpless brother-in-law. If I remember rightly, Lamson picked up a cake of pear soap and something else, and, having bought these, he said that he wanted three grains of sulfate of atropine and one grain of aconitine. Knowing him as a medical man, he was served without question and without suspicion, and the poisons were not entered in the poisons book. But I made an entry of the sales in what I called my waste book, 
a sort of rough day-book, and this proceeding absolutely fixed the date of the purchase, and by doing so helped largely, I believe, in the conviction of the doctor. The small bottle from which the aconitine was taken that day is still preserved, but it is no longer used. There is still in it some of the identical poison from which the grain was sold. Aconitine is one of the swiftest and most deadly poisons known. An infinitesimal dose will cause agonizing suffering and death in a few hours. To show the powerful action of aconitine, I might say that the British Pharmacopoeia gives no dose, while Martindale's Pharmacopoeia gives one six-hundredth to one two-hundredth of a grain. To get the dose properly distributed, it is necessary to triturate it well with a gritty powder, such as sugar of milk. The doctor had got an entire grain, and three grains of atropine, another intensely poisonous substance, of which the usual dose is a hundredth part of a grain. I had supplied these things in the usual way, without so much as the remotest suspicion of anything being wrong entering my mind, nor had I any misgiving whatsoever until a well-known local practitioner came into my shop and said, "'You know the name of Lamson?' "'Of course,' I replied that I did. "'Well,' he continued, "'do you know that the police are after him? It is said that he has poisoned his brother-in-law at Wimbledon, and that the poison used was aconitine.' I was utterly taken aback, and exclaimed, why, I supplied him with some aconitine a few weeks ago. I instantly hunted up my waste book, and there the entry was. The doctor advised me to communicate with the treasury, and I did so, stating that I had supplied aconitine to Lampson. The result was that without the slightest delay, Inspector Butcher of Scotland Yard came to see me, and that began an unwilling association with the case, which ended only with a truly dreadful day when I saw Lamson condemned to the death from which no effort succeeded in saving him. Naturally enough, I became acquainted with every detail of this famous case, from the opening of the inquest at Wimbledon to the time when Mr. Justice Hawkins sentenced Lamson to death. They talk of his lordship as the hanging judge, but my own impression, gained from two famous trials with which I have been connected, one relating to a member of the Bonaparte family, is that he was a very kind and amiable gentleman. The facts of the case, as they were slowly ascertained, showed that the day after Lamson obtained the aconitine from me, he administered some of it to his brother-in-law, Percy Malcolm John, who was then staying with his sister and her husband at Shanklin. The lad was taken violently ill, but the illness passed off. On that occasion no doctor was summoned, and in due course the lad was taken back to the school at Wimbledon. There is little doubt that after obtaining the aconitine from me, Lamson went to another chemist in Ventnor, Mr. Littlefield, and bought from him some quinine powders, into several of which, and into some quinine pills, he introduced the poison. Mr. Littlefield, who was called as a witness, was able to swear that he did not keep aconitine, and had never had any in his shop. Though paralyzed in the lower limbs, and suffering from curvature of the spine, Yet Percy Malcolm John was free from actual disease, and was able to wheel himself about in specially made chairs. He had, however, to be carried both up and down stairs, a task which was frequently, and, we may be sure, kindly performed by his fellow students. Two or three days after visiting me on August 28th, Lamps had crossed to America, and from that country he sent to his brother-in-law at Wimbledon a box of pills, of which the lad took one, and, having done so, declared that he felt ill, just as he had felt at Shanklin after taking a quinine pill which Lamson had prepared for him. 
These pills, it was proved, contained poison. After staying a few weeks in America, Lamson returned to Ventnor, and it was soon obvious that he was reduced to the last extremity to obtain money. On the voyage home on the city of Berlin, he borrowed five pounds from the ship's surgeon. Executions and writs were out against him. His household furniture had been sold. He had pawned personal belongings and had cashed worthless checks, drawn on banks where he had no accounts. It was quite clear that he meant to spare no effort to get his brother-in-law out of the way, and so become possessed of a sum of about fifteen hundred pounds, which would revert to him on the lad's death. Towards the end of November, Lamson bought two grains of aconitine from a firm of London chemists, having without success tried to get a quantity of the poison from another firm. He also bought a Dundee cake, which figured prominently in the development of the case. On the evening of Saturday, December 3rd, Lamson went to Blenheim House. Percy Malcolm John was expecting him, for Lamson had sent a letter saying that he meant to call and see him before leaving for Paris and Florence. When Lamson called, just after seven o'clock, he was shown into the dining room, and the crippled lad was carried up from the basement by a fellow pupil and placed in a chair. The pupil left the room, and Lamson, the lad, and Mr. Bedbrook, the proprietor of the school, were together. At Mr. Bedbrook's invitation, Lamson took a glass of sherry, into which he put some castor sugar to counteract, he said, the effects of the alcohol. He had asked for the sugar, and the housekeeper had brought it into the room. From a bag which he carried, Lamson took some cake and sweetmeats. He also produced a box of capsules, saying that he had brought them from America, and that they would be found very useful for the purpose of giving medicine to the boys. A capsule, of course, is a gummy envelope for a nauseous drug. He gave one to Mr. Bedbrook to try, and Mr. Bedbrook took it, noticing, meanwhile, that Lamson was putting some of the castor sugar into another capsule. Shaking this capsule, Lamson told the lad that he was a swell pill-taker, and asked him to swallow it, which Percy, unsuspecting, immediately did. Meanwhile, Lamson had been eating the cake, and Mr. Bedbrook and Percy also took some, as well as some sweets which Lamson had produced. Almost as soon as the lad had swallowed the capsule, Lamson hurried away from the house, saying that he had to catch a train for the continent. It is interesting to remember that when he had tried to poison his brother-in-law at Shanklin, Lamson lost no time in escaping to America. It is reasonable to suppose that he calculated that by the time he returned, the death of his brother-in-law, if it had taken place, would have been completely forgotten, and the burial having taken place, there would be little or no probability of suspicion falling on the doctor. About four hours after Lamson hastily departed from the house at Wimbledon, Percy Malcolm John was dead. Within a few minutes of taking the cake and capsule, the lad was in agony, and despite the prompt attention of two doctors, one of whom was in the house at the time, nothing could be done to save him. Next day, Sunday, Mr. Bedbrook reported the matter to the police, and grave suspicion instantly attached to Lamson. The crippled student had died on December 3rd, and so early as the morning of December 8th, Scotland Yard had sent a police sergeant to Paris to make inquiries concerning the whereabouts of Lamson. But on that very morning a haggard and distressed man, accompanied by a woman, presented himself at the yard and said to Inspector Butcher, who saw him in a room there, I am Dr. Lamson, whose name has been mentioned in connection with the death at Wimbledon. 
He said that he had come from Paris by way of Havre and Southampton, though he was unfit to travel, being unwell and much upset by this affair. Lamson evidently expected to be allowed to go after reporting himself, but he was detained at Scotland Yard, and after being formally charged with causing the death of Percy Malcolm John, he was taken to Wandsworth Police Court in a cab. Bail was applied for and refused, and from the moment Lamson surrendered himself at Scotland Yard, though there was no actual warrant or charge against him, he was a prisoner, and in his heart of hearts he must have known that he was doomed. There were the preliminaries of the inquest and magisterial inquiry to be gone through before the trial came on at the Old Bailey, which meant life or death to the unhappy prisoner. On March 8, 1882, just three months after Lamson surrendered at Scotland Yard, his trial began and ended after five long days. His leading counsel was Mr. Montague Williams, and if mortal man could have secured an acquittal, I am certain that that famous barrister would have done it, for he made a powerful and almost irresistible speech on behalf of the accused man, whose interests he had watched throughout since the preliminary inquiry. Extraordinary public interest was shown in the case, especially in relation to the effect of such a deadly poison as aconitine, and the tests that were made to establish the cause of the death of the crippled lad as being due to the administration of this particular alkaloid. Aconitine, which had been taken from the body of the murdered lad, was administered to mice, which died very quickly. That was one experiment which was carefully carried out to prove the deadly nature of the poison, but the principal test was that of taste. That is to say, the expert witnesses had to place a minute quantity of the aconitine on the tongue, and in that dangerous and unpleasant manner ascertain its real character." That the poison extracted from the lad was aconitine was established beyond any possible doubt. The case for the prosecution rested on the assumption that the prisoner had given the poison through the medium of the capsule, which he had prepared either before going to see his brother-in-law or while actually in the lad's presence and that of Mr. Bedbrook. There was, I believe, another theory that the aconitine had been introduced into a piece of the cake, and that the prisoner saw to it that this particular piece was eaten by his brother-in-law. Mr. Williams, in his speech for the defense, did his best to destroy the theory of the prosecution and discredit the case for the Crown, but he did not succeed, nor was any evidence offered on the prisoner's behalf, in itself a significant proceeding." The closing hours of the trial were extremely painful, largely owing to the impression created by the speech for the defense, and more so because of the presence in court of the prisoner's wife, the thin, spare figure, as Mr. Williams called her, who had gone up to the dock and taken her husband by the hand to encourage him and show that she at least believed him to be innocent, however guilty he might be reckoned by the world." It was six o'clock at night when the judge finished his summing up, and the jury retired to consider their verdict. They were absent for only half an hour. Then they returned a verdict of guilty. What followed was not, mercifully, witnessed by the thin spare figure, for she had been gently taken away by friends from the crowded court. Few words were spoken by Mr. Justice Hawkins in passing sentence of death, he merely alluded to the crime as being cruel, base, and treacherous, and as soon as the final words of doom had been uttered, and the chaplain had exclaimed, Amen, Lamson was removed from the dock. He had been, it seems, confident of an acquittal, and was terribly dejected at the finding of the verdict of guilty. 
My own recollection of the doctor's appearance at the finish of the trial is that he would have collapsed in the dock while being sentenced if the warders had not stood very close to him and supported him. Before being removed, Lamson said nothing except to declare solemnly that he was innocent. In the ordinary course of things he would have been hanged on April 2nd, but the execution was twice postponed, and the prisoner was respited to give every opportunity of affidavits coming from the United States to prove his insanity and for testimony to be obtained in England that he was not capable of knowing what he was doing because of his habit of taking drugs. Numerous affidavits were sworn that the condemned man was an opium-taker, and that, owing to the influence of this drug, he was not responsible for his actions. Lamson had been taken to Wandsworth Prison, and there, on April 28th, he was hanged, all efforts to save him having failed. There were those who believed in his innocence and were very sorry for him, and I believe that sympathetic women actually took flowers to the prison and left them for him. The vast majority of people, however, were satisfied that he suffered very justly for an uncommonly cruel and premeditated crime, even before he confessed that he had committed the murder. He did not, however, explain how he had done it. Most of us have read Mr. Montague Williams's Leaves of a Life. In that book, the famous counsel dealt, of course, with the Lamson case, and made some remarks which must have set finally at rest any lingering doubts as to the murderer's guilt. From the circumstances which came to his knowledge after the trial, Mr. Williams said that Mrs. Lamson full well knew her husband to be guilty, and knew more than was proved before the legal tribunal. This meant that she was probably aware that her other brother, by whose death Lamson came into a considerable sum of money, was also murdered by him. What happened to Mrs. Lamson? I cannot say what her ultimate fortune was, but I believe that, after the dreadful tragedy with which she had been so closely and unhappily associated, she started a boarding house. That was the last I heard of her. End of chapter 14. The Lamson Case.